This is Asha Voices. I'm J.D. Gray. In the coming weeks, you can expect more COVID-19 related interviews on the podcast. But on this episode, we're instead going to be talking about family and autism. April is Autism Awareness Month. We'll be joined by Barry Brazant. Barry is the author of Uniquely Human. In the book, he writes about autism through an empathetic and appreciative lens. Barry joins us for a conversation about family-centered practice and autism. I believe very strongly that professionals need to receive training in how to communicate and develop trust with parents. Later in the program, we'll speak with Denise Underkoffler. Her new children's book from Asha Press looks at the role siblings can play in speech-language treatment. Hear the personal inspiration behind her book, Everybody Needs a Turn. I'm J.D. Gray, and this is Asha Voices. Support for Asha Voices comes from Asha's new resource, That's Unheard Of. This online resource features a variety of tools developed to enhance your soft skills while helping you manage your practice and develop effective treatment plans. Check out thatsunheardof.org. Author and SLP Barry Prezant's book, Uniquely Human, is known for its empathetic reimagining of how autism is viewed. Among his many credits, he is also one of the developers of the CERTS model. CERTS stands for Social Communication, Emotional Regulation, and Transactional Support. It's an educational model used to support people with autism and others, and it encourages a family-centered approach to practice. Barry joined me from Rhode Island to discuss autism treatment and the role families play in supporting and participating in that treatment. I asked Barry if we're seeing the role of the family evolve in autism intervention. Yes, absolutely. On many different levels, we now know that families must be centrally involved. The first reason is pretty obvious. They're with their family member or their child virtually 24-7 if the child's not in school, if the child's in school, all those other hours. And what we like to say in our educational model, the CERTS model, is that family members are experts about their child. And what we mean by that is they may not be experts about autism, even though many parents become experts about autism, but they know their child or their family member the best. Is there a story or an example of this that might come to mind in a way that a family member could have seen something that might be harder for a clinician or a someone working with the child. Yeah, actually one story uh, that I share in Uniquely Human is uh, the story that was told to me by a dad. And at the time his son was four. His son, his name is Nick, his son, and his son is now in his thirties. And it was about how before Nick's speech fully developed, Nick communicated quite a bit to his sibling and to his parents through his gestures and through vocalizing. The story goes like this. Nick would bring and take the hand of his mother or father, bring them over to the refrigerator when he was hungry or thirsty, and he would open the door and he would point to juice or he would point to some snack that he wanted. And the people who were working with the family would say, well, we have to make Nick say his words. The dad shared that you know, given the instructions that they were given, they would say, Nick, use your words. Nick, use your words. And the dad very tearfully communicated to me about how he would see Nick just melt down. And Nick knew exactly what he wanted. He thought he was communicating effectively. And the dad said, so we needed to change our ways. And what we did is we responded 
to his gestures and his vocalizations if they could clearly understand Nick's intentions, and then they would model the speech for him. And so the revelation from this dad was what was most important was successful communication, and that language would come with good modeling and with successful communication. But to add additional stress in that circumstance to Nick when he was trying to communicate, they felt was just not the wrong way to have Nick feel that he could be successful in communicating. The father was able to develop that insight just through the amount of time and relationship he had with his son? Exactly. And, and a big piece of that, which we emphasize in all of our work, is reading the child's signals and responding to the child's signals. Not only signals of communication, such as words or gestures, but also emotional signals. The dad could see how communication through speech, because where Nick was in his speech and language development was just too frustrating for him to be able to do all the time. Within a few years, Nick was conversational in his speech, and Nick is actually the bookkeeper for an agency that serves families with children with autism right now. Oh, that's wonderful. The dad's instincts were correct, and that's something I emphasize in Uniquely Human, that so often parental instincts are correct, That doesn't mean that they don't benefit greatly from the guidance that professionals provide, but too often in the past, parents have been challenged about their natural instincts in raising their child. Let's talk about the parent-clinician relationship. In 2016, you told the ASHA leader, one thing I've learned over the years is that if a parent expresses anger or mistrust, the first question I should be asking is, why is this parent so stressed that they're feeling such anger? What could I or our team do differently? I'm wondering now, what tools do clinicians have for redirecting such strong emotions in parents? Yes, yeah, this, this is an area um, I talk a lot about, I also have great concerns about. I believe very strongly that professionals need to receive training in how to communicate and develop trust with parents. And let me give you one example how good intentions are not just enough. I was at a progress report meeting last year in a school district. And when I consult the schools, I always ask that after I observe the child and meet with the team that we invite the parents in and we all sit down together. The parents said to the teacher, you know, I'm concerned a little bit because Billy's flapping his hands a lot more at home. The teacher said, oh, you don't need to worry about that. Autistic kids flap their hands a lot. The teacher's intention was to decrease the anxiety or the worry. But what the teacher said was not addressing the concern. Now, how might you do that? Well, we do know that children with autism who have sometimes repetitive motor behaviors, such as flapping their hands, they do it under states of excitement. Sometimes they do it under states of stress to decrease the stress. It's an expression, a physiological expression of their emotional experience. But in a sense, the parent thought that this teacher had dismissed her concern because the teacher said, you don't need to worry about that. And the parent was saying, but I am worried about that. You know, please help me understand what's going on. Because the parent wasn't just concerned about the physical movement, but perhaps the distress. The, the distress and also depending upon what the parent reads, some people, and we don't believe this, but some people believe that, oh, flapping is a negative symptom of autism. And the more a child flaps, the more they're autistic. Whereas, as we say in Uniquely Human, it's a human behavior that's an expression of that child's 
physiological and emotional experience. Do you view a parent's relationship with a clinician as that of a collaborator? Yes, absolutely. Um, and what I mean by collaborator is there needs to be mutual decision-making, that we have to work together with parents. We have to ask the really the good questions so we can get the information that's most helpful to us. Now, some approaches in autism, especially some approaches historically that fall under the category of applied behavior analysis, come from what I refer to as an expert model, that we're the expert, we are going to write out a program for parents to deal with, for example, a child screaming or difficult behavior, and parents need to follow those programs. Um, that happens very often in schools as well. And in some cases, those recommendations are made without asking the parents, well, how do you feel about this? Or do you see your child's behavior in a different way than I see your child's behavior? Parents have to feel like they have ownership and that they're respected and that they're listened to. And unfortunately, that doesn't happen enough. And what happens when that doesn't happen enough? Something that has its own epidemic in schools, and that's litigation. That my understanding is that lawsuits around issues related to serving children, quote unquote, with special needs, happens more with autistic children than any other diagnostic category in American schools. There are so many possibilities for mistrust and so many opportunities for building trust. We've talked a lot about parents. A lot of times when it comes to a family, there's someone else in the home as well, right? And I'm talking about the role of siblings. These situations can vary greatly. I wonder if we could talk a little bit about the role that siblings play. Yes, yeah. We do know the experience of brothers and sisters when they have a family member or a brother or sister on the spectrum is a different experience in many ways as it is for a child who does not have a sibling on the spectrum. I'd also like to add to that, it's similar in some ways. So you do have sibling jealousy, you do have sibling rivalry, but one of the issues that we often see is when a brother or sister who's neurotypical is developing, maybe a younger brother or sister, and they see their abilities actually pass the abilities of an older brother or sister who's on the autism spectrum. Because typically, in so many family situations, older brothers and sisters sometimes provide guidance, sometimes provide a model, sometimes provide an inspiration. If you're very proud of your brother or sister in terms of what they do, whether they're a good student or a good athlete, and you're a younger child, very often you aspire to try to do those things as well. In some cases, brothers or sisters of kids on the spectrum see the need or parents see the need for them to be part-time caregivers, which is kind of an unusual role unless you're an older brother or sister taking care of a preschooler, for example. There are all kinds of other issues, such as being with a brother or sister on the spectrum in public. Some brothers and sisters become very protective, that if they see their brother or sister being teased or not being respected, they stand up for them. They actually really try to make sure that their brother or sister is not being egged on or being teased in any way. Some brothers or sisters become surrogate teachers 
At the end of our conversation, I asked Barry about the term he uses in Uniquely Human. Barry says that some people get it, referring to a form of empathy that some people possess that allow them to better relate to those with autism. I asked Barry if he thinks that siblings are more likely to get it. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, siblings, we have to understand, are developing themselves if, it's, if we're talking about you know, the childhood years. So I've known siblings who go through periods of, for example, maybe let's take an example of a six-year-old little boy on the spectrum and the sibling is four or five. They may not see major differences at that time and they may interact with their brother or sister in a way that is kind of more typical. They may have problems engaging their brother or sister, but as they develop, um, and I'm talking about the neurotypical brothers and sisters, they may go through stages of wanting to nurture, wanting to teach their brother or sister, wanting to be a playmate with their brother and sister. And then, for example, as they approach the early teen years, as all children do, they become very focused on themselves um, and are concerned about, well, what does this mean if I walk outside with my brother or sister on the spectrum who behaves differently? And people look at me and say, oh, you have a really strange or really weird brother or sister. I've known kids who were wonderful siblings in the earlier years, did not want to be seen outside with their brother or sister on the spectrum as they moved into their preteen years. And then after they went through that developmental period, they became the best supports um, for their brothers and sisters. The, an another thing, which is very interesting for speech and language pathologists, is that very often brothers and sisters become the best interpreters of the communicative signals of their brother or sister on the spectrum. Because sometimes, due to the neurologically-based disability, the communication abilities of a child on the spectrum are difficult to read. They're clearly trying to communicate, but they might have problems communicating clearly through speech, through gestures, and people have difficulty reading their signals. Sometimes we ask the brother or sister, you know, when he does that, what does that mean? And they go, oh, of course, that means this. So some brothers and sisters actually play that role, almost like being an interpreter for their brother and sister so that other people understand them better. I can't help but think, though, whether it's a, the role of interpreter or teacher or in some way taking on a guardian role, that's a lot of responsibility for a child. Yes, yes. And actually, what research demonstrates, looking at brothers and sisters, when you ask the question, you know, for brothers and sisters, neurotypical brothers and sisters, who kind of are the best adjusted and seem to have a balanced view of the experience of having a sibling on the spectrum, what the research tells us is that when parents say to the neurotypical brother or sister, you don't have to worry about anything. Mom and dad will take care of everything. That's not the best approach. On the other extreme, when a brother or sister is told you need to be another parent and you have all of these responsibilities, that's not the best approach. The best approach seems to be giving a brother or sister, um, if you will, responsibilities that are developmentally appropriate for them, are things that they can do and ideally can succeed at in helping out in the house or helping out with the brother and sister, but it shouldn't feel like it's being imposed upon the brother or sister. 
they should feel some ownership in making some choices as to how they best could help out. So it's that balanced perspective. Yes, a brother or sister should have some responsibility if it helps the whole family, because that happens in all families. But it should not be hands off, don't worry about it. And it should not be, we want you to be another parent and be so involved that it takes you away so much from your own friendships or your own childhood. Among his many credits, Barry Prezant is the author of Uniquely Human. Barry, thanks for being with us today. Thank you so much. Many of our work lives look different during this time because of COVID-19. Looking for support with incorporating family members through telepractice? You can find it at leader.pubs.asha.org. I'll put a link on this episode's blog post. And if you want to learn more about the CERTS model, you can check out ASHA's on-demand webinar called Using CERTS to Identify Evidence-Based Practices for Children with Autism. Find the webinar in the ASHA Learning Pass. The Learning Pass is currently free for ASHA members through June 30th. Check it out by going to on.asha.org slash learningpass2020. That's Learning Pass with a capital L and a capital P. If you're not an ASHA member, visit the ASHA store. We're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we'll talk with Denise Underkoffler and her daughter Abby Diaz about speech-language treatment in family. Support for ASHA Voices comes from ASHA's new resource, That's Unheard Of. It's always important to check for blind spots in your practice. That's Unheard Of features a variety of tools developed to enhance your soft skills while helping you manage your practice and develop effective treatment plans. The tools are quick and easy to use. Learn more at thatsunheardof.org. When children visit with speech-language pathologists for treatment, what happens to their siblings? In her new book, Everybody Needs a Turn, Denise Underkoffler writes about the challenging emotions that can affect the siblings of children with communication disorders or differences. Denise brings a personal lens to the subject. She's an SLP. She grew up with a sister who stutters. Denise's son faced medical issues since birth, making her the parent of a child who had speech-language appointments and a daughter who did not. Denise joined me from Pennsylvania to discuss her book. A bit later in the conversation, we're joined by Denise's daughter, Abby Diaz, who is now an occupational therapist. We'll start the conversation with Denise sharing the story found in her book, Everybody Needs a Turn. Well, the story is about a little girl, Hannah, who has a brother who goes to speech therapy often, and her parents also work with her little brother, Peter. And so Hannah often feels like she's waiting in waiting rooms while Peter is getting speech therapy. She doesn't get to participate. And also at home in the book, I talk about it's time for her bedtime story with her family. And um, her parents are busy working with her brother, Peter. And she gets very upset and she acts out. The parents kind of figure out that she's upset because she feels like she's not getting her turn. And then they start talking to the speech pathologist and they come up with some new strategies of how Hannah can be included in some of the therapy process. And it kind of changes the whole family dynamic. So it it illustrates how a sibling can feel and also gives a little bit of an example of signs that a family can look for, like acting out, 
showing behaviors because siblings don't often know how to talk about this. So that's that's kind of what the story's about. <laughs> <laughs> There's a bit of a twist. The sibling becomes a communication partner. It's something that people talk about a lot. You think of family-centered care uh, or family-centered treatment. How does that change things in the story, Denise? Well, actually, talking about this within families and focusing on family-centered therapy is something that we're talking about now. But for a long, long time, we didn't really think about it or talk about it uh, much at all. So in the story, once Hannah becomes more involved in the process, she does become his communication partner. And one of the reasons I, I wanted to show this in the story is I've done this in my own therapy sessions where I've incorporated the sibling into therapy and they have a little job to do. And it actually kind of makes makes the sibling at times feel like they're part of the team. And it, it often turns into a win-win situation for both the child who's receiving therapy and the sibling, because the sibling can end up actually helping the the child to talk even when they're at home and help them practice whatever the parents have been working on or the speech pathologist is is saying they need to be working on. Sometimes the child with the communication disorder is actually working harder for the sibling than for the parent or the speech pathologist. So it can become a win-win situation for both. You've been an SLP for many years. Have you seen examples where it didn't go as well, where a child was acting out? Is there someone that comes to mind? Yes, I actually had a situation where I was seeing a child that had a diagnosis of autism and the sibling used to sit outside my office and wait. And this child that I was seeing, he received many services. It wasn't just speech therapy with me. It was a lot of different kinds of services. So I would, I'm imagining that his sibling was waiting a lot during many different services. And he actually stopped talking and eventually received a diagnosis of selective mutism. And when the mother talked to me about it, she said the psychologist felt this was happening because he wanted to participate and get the kind of attention that his brother was getting. And so he actually stopped talking so that he would start getting attention from others as well. That was a very drastic situation that I saw. It's usually much more subtle than that, but that one really took me aback. Yeah. Abby, I want to bring you into the conversation now. One thing I think is really well illustrated in this book is that a child can care deeply about their sibling, but still struggle with the complicated emotions that can come with being in the other room outside of the treatment. Did that ring true to your experience as a child? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I loved my brother so much and wanted to be around him all the time. But, you know, as we got older, he was a little bit older than me and things started happening in life. I had things I was interested in too. Not a lot, but, you know, occasionally 
the things that I wanted to do or the things that I was interested in or the things that I was looking forward to couldn't happen or had to happen in a different way because his needs came first. So as a, a child and even like a young teenager, sometimes it's hard to like figure out those emotions when you're dealing with loving your sibling and wanting what's best for them, but also wanting what you want as well. Yeah. I can imagine that's difficult to navigate. Definitely. And I mean, my parents did a great job after they started to realize like, oh, wow, yeah, there, there's a lot of attention on him. Let's bring Abby back into this. And, you know, as I look back on it, they did a fabulous job. And I'm so thankful for the experience and everything I went through made me who I am today and the therapist I am today and kind of being empathetic towards the sibling and the families. And, you know, I've been on both sides, so I'm thankful for it. But it's definitely something that kids need help navigating for sure. Denise, did your sister ever meet with an SLP regarding her stutter? Yes. She went to speech therapy for a long, long time. And I know that she really struggled with her stutter. And I think, you know, that's what really frightened me that I I worried about her because I could see it was such a struggle for her. So yes, I, I remember my mother taking her quite often and it really helped her. I mean, now as an adult, she's doing really great. That's wonderful. Do you have any memories of also having these complicated emotions and feeling perhaps left out, like you needed a turn? Yeah. I mean, you know, she was older than me. So, you know, it took me a while to figure out that she was getting help for her speech. And actually, many, many years later, I realized that I felt kind of guilty that I could speak so well and she struggled so much with it. You know, I didn't realize that as a child, but as an adult looking back, I did kind of figure that out at some point. Like, I think that's part of what confused me. Like, why was she having so much trouble with this? And I wasn't. And I didn't know what to do to help her at the time. So that was upsetting. Abby, uh, we're talking about family. And as the sibling of someone who is receiving um, speech-language treatment as well as other treatment, I'm wondering how you think the experience influenced your life. It influenced my life greatly. Like I had said before, I'm an occupational therapist. And just from watching my brother receive therapy and services, I knew from a young age that I wanted to be in that allied health profession. I thought I wanted to be a speech pathologist because that's what my mom is. But I actually fell in love with occupational therapy and now I'm a pediatric occupational therapist. So it's impacted me greatly. And I think having a sibling with speech and language needs and other medical needs and disabilities, it opens my perspective and I can kind of relate to the family on a personal level. And I also relate on a therapy level as well. Denise, if there's one thing that you wanted people to take away from the book, what would it be? It would be that it's really important, no matter what the situation is, 
whether a child has autism or medical needs or social needs or communication needs, it's really important that parents think about making sure every child within the family knows they hold a special place in that family. I guess that would be the one thing I would hope families would look at and really pay attention to. SLP and author Denise Underkoffler. She was joined by her daughter, Abby Diaz. Denise's book is called Everybody Needs a Turn. At the time of this episode's publication, Esha is running a promotion, Get It for 20% Off. Find the book in the Asha store on asha.org, and we'll put a link to it on the blog post for this episode. Find that at leader.pubs.asha.org. Asha Voices is produced by the American Speech Language Hearing Association and comes from the team behind the Asha Leader magazine. Support for Asha Voices comes from Asha's new resource, That's Unheard Of, This online resource features a variety of tools developed to enhance soft skills while helping you manage your practice and develop effective treatment plans. Learn more at thatsunheardof.org. Production assistance for ASHA Voices comes from Pamela Lawrence. I'm J.D. Gray, and this is ASHA Voices. (music) 